Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this outstanding discussion we're getting ready to have here with Mr. James Wetrick. James, thanks for being with us. Earl, it's a delight and a pleasure and an honor to be with you and, and uh, your listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Oh, I'm, I'm really honored to have you here. And listeners, this is why. These are the things I want you to know about Jim. Jim Wetrich is CEO of the Wetrich Group of Companies. He lectures and blogs about leadership and teamwork, as well as coaches and mentors executives across many industries. He has been a guest lecturer at the Gozueta School of Business at Ember University, and he recently authored a chapter in the anthology Quitless, Power of Persistence in Business and Life by Alinka Rutkowska. Uh, That was published back in March of 21, and became a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Now, what we're going to talk about here kind of as a backdrop a little bit is uh, his new book, Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. And that was also released back in 21. So as you can see, Jim's got a lot of experience here uh, with leadership in in various aspects, which makes me very excited to hear how uh, he answers this first question where I start off all my guests. So Jim, when you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Yeah, uh, Earl, I think it's uh, it's a great question, and and um, you know leadership leadership is uh, is actually extremely difficult, um, and um, it requires a lot of things. Um, and I have a credo. The credo is in the book, and and an important part of uh, what I believe is um, that you have to. Uh, um, act with uh, caring, respect, and with integrity. Those things are really important. Um, I also think it involves persistence. It involves insistence. Uh, it involves having a vision, having perseverance, overcoming uh, obstacles and barriers, you know, making tough decisions, uh, and more importantly, and, and I know I, I, I dedicated a chapter to this in the book, is being self-aware. I think all those things uh, are really important to what uh, makes uh, a leader a good leader. Mm. I love that. I love that answer quite a bit. And, you know, because, again, I'm always very, very excited when I hear very smart people uh, kind of say some of the same things that that I say, especially, you know, talking about self-awareness and those sorts of things. So yep. I really, really do like that that Great. answer there. Good. Thank um, you, Earl. Yep. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And and folks, again, I, I want you to go and, and grab a copy of the book, Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. And um, 
I really think that this is something that is going to help you unpack your leadership potential. And I'm kind of curious, like what got you kind of going down the path of writing a book in the first place? Yeah. Um, I, um, I've been wanting to write a memoir Earl for quite some time and I'm actually working on that and have been working on it for an embarrassingly long period of time. And let me assure you, my life isn't memoir worthy. It's not about me and my life. Um, but it's about my best friend, uh, Marcus Forcinelli, um, who, uh, he and I became close in high school and then, uh, and college. Um, and even though we went to separate schools and when I was in my first semester of graduate school, um, when he was 20 years old, he lost a six month battle with leukemia and Marcus was an only child and his death changed my life. And it's just the impact that he had on my life that I really am trying to write about. So I've been working on that. Um, seriously since 2015. And um, during the pandemic, I, I uh, had also been working on Stifled beforehand. And during the pandemic, I opened up my computer and said, I've got to get one of these two done. And it's going to be easier for me to get Stifled done. I'm still working on the memoir. In fact, I'm going to a writer's conference next week to spend a week working on the memoir. It's probably about 70% done, but um, I really got focused and I said, look, if I just dedicate myself to getting Stifle done, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get it over the end zone, which fortunately I was able to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's, again, a, a, a key message in self-awareness right there, right? You were given, gave yourself two options and you, you kind of chose the one uh, not about you specifically, because uh, that's that's really hard for us to do when we sit back and we try to think about our life story and writing a memoir, uh, taking that time for self-reflection and, and really kind of peeling back those layers. It's it's interesting that that was the the heavier of the two lifts. I think that says a little something, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's still um, um, it's still very um, emotional um, when I when I work on it and it and it brings back lots of memories and, and, uh, you know, I also am very lucky about how life has turned out generally. And, and, uh, I always kind of wonder what would have happened if Marcus hadn't passed away and, and, um, you know, what kind of a life he would have had and, and, uh, how he would have turned out. He was, uh, very much into broadcast journalism and I think he may have been very successful in that field. Yeah. So you always, you always kind of wonder. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so coming back to the book here for a second that, that you have finished, Stifled, um, I love the way that you have this broken down and I love the topics that you hit on uh, through the chapters here. And and honestly, uh, listeners, I think we could probably have an entire podcast on each and every one of these chapters because I think you did a fantastic job of narrowing down uh, some of the some of the big reasons where good leaders go yep. wrong. Um, and I'm kind of curious before we start diving into those, like where did these chapter titles come from? Was this personal experience, or uh, uh, did you have kind of a focus group that said, "Hey, these are the things"? Or how did you come up with these titles? Yeah, great question, Earl. Great question. What I did uh, initially is uh, put together as detailed an outline as I could in terms of 
just things I wanted to include in the book and um, not everything, you know, uh, <laughs> there's still some stuff on the, on the proverbial floor of the edit room, uh, you know, some film that didn't make it. But um, uh, out of that seemed to come these various themes and um, that's how I organized the thinking around these themes. What's happened, Earl, which has been, I, I can tell you in all honesty, not at all intentional, but what's happened is a number of people who've um, bought the book have found that the breakdown and the chapters make it very conducive for using it as a tool in their organization for conversations and coaching, in some cases, their own teams or their own direct reports. And I, I wish I could tell you that that was something that was intentional. It was completely accidental, but I'm glad it's worked out that way. And, and uh, that's, that's how we got to, uh, to the, 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 the major chapters that we selected. Yeah, no, that is, that is great. That is great. And I like, uh, you know, you, you come out of the box swinging here with chapter one, uh, focus on failure. And I I love this quote that you open with because it's one that I've shared on a version of it. I've shared on here before. So you open that with the Henry Ford quote, the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. Yep. And yep. I always share my senior drill instructor in boot camp. One of the first things he said to us was, the only bad mistake is one you make twice. Yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> it was that's a little I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious. Like, why Why did you decide to put focus on failure as, as the number one chapter in the book? Well, I think, um, Earl, it's it's um, such a uh, inflection point for so many uh, people, and uh, you're you're either on uh, either side of this, and and I've seen so many leaders in my career, you know, um, derail people who've made mistakes because they just didn't tolerate mistakes mistakes were mistakes and were unacceptable. And uh, that was that. And I'm much more of the ilk of the other camp, like your drill instructor is, right? We're all going to make mistakes. Um, we're, we're human. Uh, you know, we have a, a lot of flaws. And I can tell you I'm 65 and a half years old, and I'm still making mistakes, and I'm still learning from those mistakes. Um, so I think as we've evolved in my career, um, in, in my, you know, my work history, we're being more, becoming more and more tolerant of that. And more importantly, what can we do to learn from that? Um, and I think that's, what's really important. And, um, I, I just think it's such, uh, uh, a critical, point of reflection and inflection uh for for leaders that's why i started off with that yeah no i love what you said there and i love the things that you get in uh in the chapter and you know because it reminded me um i'm a big fan of general stanley mccrystal yeah and uh, i heard him uh during one of his speeches uh, he was sharing a personal story about about a time that he had failed and how it was handled uh but he summed it up very well when he says uh I learned at that point in time that a good leader can let you fail without being a failure. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, love and I that. think that's, yep. I, I think that's, you know, really what you're talking about here is, is, is when you just focus on the failure, you don't give people the space to, to breathe and innovate and take chances to move the organization forward. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, um, it's just, uh, unfortunate to see a number of, careers that have um, been really derailed because there were leaders that were intolerant of those things. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's a point of maturation, I think, for a lot of young managers uh, who are becoming leaders is figuring out how to harness this and how to accept it. So, um, you know, it's, it's something we all have to work on. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. So let's. Well, uh, yeah, p- part of it is just how we're brought up, right? We're we're supposed to, you know, get all the answers right. We're supposed to have all the answers. We're supposed to get an A on the test. We're supposed to know everything. We're supposed to, you know, and and not having all that, you know, we're we're if if we don't know everything or didn't get everything right, you know, even though we may have only missed one out of a hundred or two out of a hundred or ten out of a hundred, right? We haven't done well because we didn't get them all right. So I think it's part of the orientation about what really truly is acceptable yeah no a hundred percent i remember reading an article this was several years ago i don't even remember when the study was done but highlighting what you're talking about they they uh uh, i want to say it was harvard did a study because harvard does a lot of studies right um they they sent uh report cards home to parents where they gave the child like uh, mostly a's maybe a b but there was uh, one d and some they had an f on there and they asked the parents to, you know, critique the report card. And it was something like 92% of them led off with the lowest grade. Yep. And, and you know, they, they intentionally put the, the lowest grade in something, you know, like, uh, you know, PE or yeah, art right. or music. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to belittle those programs. No, They're no. They're very no. important. Yep. Uh, but they missed the fact that, you know, their, their child was making an A in history, an A in science, an A in yeah. English. Interesting. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're hardwired for some reason. I don't know why it is, but we're hardwired to focus on on failure as yep. human beings. Yep, yep, uh, yep, yep, so. yep. No, that's a great story, Earl. Thank you for sharing that. I love it. I love it. It's, it's, it's crazy. It really is. But on that note, uh, you know, skipping ahead there to chapter three, you, you talk about uh, workplace incivility mm-hmm. and bullying. And, mm-hmm. and I agree with you. I think that is a, a critical point for leaders. But uh, wh- why did you decide to talk about that one? Well, I, you know, again, I think it's it's part of reflection, right? When I started in business um, in, you know, early 80s, um, things that shouldn't have been tolerated were tolerated or maybe even condoned or, you know, uh, supported. And employers were very tough on employees and bosses were tough on people. And the attitude is, look, Wetrich, when you show up at work, you know, I own you, you work for me and you do what I say. Um, And, um, you know, to a point where people even felt pressure to do things that they knew, you know, um, deep down that weren't the right things to do or weren't maybe uh, legal or weren't ethical. So um, there's been a lot of that. And fortunately, again, uh, fast forward over 40 years, we've become a lot more savvy. We're a lot less um, um, uh, of this type of behavior than it was when I first started out. We still have a ways to go. 
Um, there's still a lot of improvement. And uh, sometimes I think we get a little uh, excited and um, may get a little um, tough on people or a little excited or a little use a little vitriol. But, um, you know, what really is the right milieu? What is the right culture? What is the right foundation for the organization? And I think um, being cognizant of your actions, your behaviors, um, and how that affects um, your organization as a leader is really, really, really important. If I'm not being appropriate, then other people are going to think not being appropriate is is just fine because the boss isn't, you know, um, being uh, as good as he should be. So I guess I can get away with not being as good as I should be either. And I I just don't think we can tolerate that anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I love that, that you put that in there because it's one of the things I talk about uh, when I, I talk about the shield, you are always on display yeah. is that exact thing there. And, and I love, again, in this chapter, you talk about uh, not only uh, the productivity piece and all that good stuff, but the fact that it opens you up to uh, lawsuits and Absolutely. damages, uh, you know, and, and I'm kind of curious with your experiences putting this together, because what I've noticed uh, you know, looking at this, because I, I talk about diversity and inclusion and, and, and ultimately incivility and bullying come in as, as part of that, is whenever we see these instances of, of workplace violence, whatever level it is, you know, somebody just loses it and throws a computer across the yep. room or, you know, some of the more tragic ones we see in the news, a lot of that can be boiled down to not paying attention to this piece. Those, those people yep. have been treated in civil, uh, with incivility. They've yep. been bullied. And they reach a breaking point, and that's how it manifests, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, um, it, it 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 always is interesting to me when, uh, and I know you've seen this in in your experiences, you'll have some quote tolerance uh, of perhaps some people who aren't acting appropriately because they're, um, you know, they're the rainmakers, they're bringing in all the sales, uh, they're bringing in all the revenue, right? Um, we can't live without Jim because, you know, he's our number one salesperson. And even though he's not acting appropriately, you know, we can't get, get rid of him. Right. So there's the lots of, uh, uh, you know, the financial, pressures that I've seen cause people to act inappropriately is I understand it, but it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And, and again, a lot of times where that happens is an organization that claims to have a zero tolerance policy. And like you said, it's amazing if somebody's hitting uh, high numbers, they, they can find some tolerance for the behavior, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I think that ties in because I wanted to jump ahead to chapter six there. And I think that ties in nicely, right, with uh, hypocritical leadership <laughs> and, and some of the things we've already talked about here yeah, is, is yeah. making sure things are in alignment, right? So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I you know, one of my favorite stories is is a manager in a large organization got up one time and said, Look, if you're a salesperson and you want to become a district manager, here's the path you need to be a salesperson you need to then do this other job for a year or two and once you've uh, been successful in sales you've come in and done this other job then you'll be in the candidate pool to be a district manager um, and you know this was in a 
multi-billion dollar division with thousands of employees. And, you know, Earl, not more than about a month later, um, uh, an opening came up. It was very precipitous. uh, And there was an opening uh, as a district manager in a big city in the United States. And um, they opted to promote a sales rep directly into that job, right? So that salesperson hadn't followed what had just been prescribed. And, you know, people were left like, well, wait a minute, not more than a month ago, you said we're not going to, you know, move people from sales rep to manager unless they've done this. This person hasn't done that. So why is this person getting a sales manager job? And I think part of, you know, what I talk about is, look, things aren't always black or white. You can uh, be a lot better by saying this is the game plan. This is what the usual path is. We reserve the right not to always follow that, but in terms of general career guidance, this is what we expect. But what happens is people set these things down as black and white, um, and then boom, they make an exception to it, and you know the wheels fall off the cart. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'll agree with you there. You know, it's it's uh, the old thing: without integrity, there can be no leadership. And yeah, if you're, that's- you know, and, and I like how you put that because it is that simple or, or you know, even having that conversation, like in, in this scenario, I don't know how well you, you knew the person who did get promoted. Maybe they had have taken that path in, in a previous job or something. Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. Yep. You know, just, just and, and I think that goes back again to that that uh, piece of, of, you know, being transparent and talking with your people and letting them know why you're making the decision you're you're making. And, and let me, I'm, I'm curious, you know, again, your experience with this is, do you think that, that leaders feel like if they, they have that discussion, uh, that it means that they're open to questioning, their authority gets undermined, or do you think there's some reason why, why leaders aren't willing to hit that level of transparency uh, to, to have those discussions so they aren't seen as hypocritical leaders? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, Earl. Um, I think in some case, it's a little bit of um, uh, practice and norm, right? Uh, One of the conversations I get uh, involved with a number of my coaching clients is, you know, um, they they want to continue to grow. They want to continue advance. They may be very senior people. um, And I always have a conversation with them about the succession planning process and where are you in that process and how transparent has your organization been with you and you know a number of organizations play that very close to the vest i think that's true about a lot of things um i'm i'm much more of the ilk to default uh on more transparency uh is better than less um i think it it um may you know flush out i mean let's 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 think of it this way earl 20 years ago, if, um, you know, we had to publish, if you will, internally as a large organization, uh, the average salary for women in a certain pay grade versus men in that same pay grade in a similar job, you know, what would we probably have found? Uh, We would have probably found in general, in most organizations, the women were getting paid less than the men, right? So, 
why didn't we <laughs> and why aren't we even today more transparent about those things? We should be. And, and organizations are, you know, continuing to push that envelope. But I think part of it is um, it, it's, it's easier for the manager to play defense than it is in many cases to play offense, right? Because um, I may I may have to really open up, you know, a lot of work for myself if I'm very transparent. So it's, uh, I, I don't think it's done maliciously and I don't think it's done from a position of power as it is as much naivete and, and just uh, the notion that it may end up being a lot more work than if I just kind of leave it the way it is now. I love that. And I think that is a a great spot. Uh, We're going to go ahead and take a quick break here for our uh, sponsorship section. And uh, we'll be right back after the break. Right, folks. So uh, welcome back from from the break there. Again, we're uh, talking with Jim Wetrick, uh, author of Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. We've been having a great discussion up here to this point. Um, And I want to pick back up. I want to actually go to the the next chapter in line there, which is uh, micromanagement and design by committee. Mm hmm. And again, I love the title of the book there, the subtitle where good leaders go wrong, because I definitely see this as a place where uh, leaders get it wrong, right? With the, yep. the micromanaging piece. And yep. uh, let's, nobody likes to be, most people don't like to be managed, period. Right. They like to be led, yep. but people definitely don't like to be micromanaged, right? Yep. Yep. And, you know, Earl, it, it's, it's, um, it's amazing in spite of all that's been written about it, in spite of all uh, the data that shows exactly what you just said, uh, it continues, you know, to be a major source of uh, angst and frustration. And um, leaders, particularly new managers, I find um, they come into that role they haven't been adequately trained. Uh, they aren't being adequately coached. They aren't being adequately managed. You know, who's managing the managers? And um, they default to just being prescriptive and telling people what to do. Now I'm the boss, right? Uh, and now I get to tell people what to do. And um, one of the big mistakes that younger and newer managers make is trying to get people who work for them to do the work the way they would do it, right? So, you know, uh, Earl, you call me in and say, hey, Jim, this is what I want you to do, and I want you to do it this way. Boom, 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 because, you know, that's the way that we do it. And it's hard. It's hard to let go, but what I found consistently throughout my career if you give people the latitude to do the work the way they want to do it in 99 and a half times out of a hundred, uh, they've done it a heck of a lot better than how I would have done it. I can tell you, right. So, um, let people have that freedom. Um, but there are still, you know, there are obviously times when we've got to be directive. There's times when we have to be prescriptive, but and there's times when you have to, you know, there's emergency situations and things like that. And you've got to, you've got to tell people what to do. But um, 
it, we're not, I think the failure, Earl, is we're not getting feedback to these managers to help them with understanding about how their behaviors are really um, um, impacting the people working for them. And I, I think I talk in that chapter or one of the chapters, you know, my, my, one of my sons was working in a, in a company, everyone on this call would know. Um, and, you know, he kept coming up with ideas about things we can do. And finally his boss just yelled at him one day and Matt say, you know, said, Matt, go back to your cubicle and do your work and stop innovating. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, how to motivating is that right? right? But right, right. But this is what continues to happen. Um, and, and, uh, it's still, it's still a huge, uh, source of frustration for a lot of people. Oh yeah. Well, exactly. You know, we talked about command and control and the old leadership models and all that kind of good stuff. And, and, but you know, this, I, I've shared this, uh, this quote on here quite a few times, but I go back to, uh, old blood and guts himself, general George Patton. Uh, He famously said, don't tell people what to do, tell them what needs to be done and get out of their way and let them dazzle you with their brilliance. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that guy got it right. So yeah. boy, taking this he, approach, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's the thing, like taking this approach, this was a guy who was like the general of, yeah. of generals back then and yeah. he knew it. Right. And, and that yeah. doesn't make, I mean, if, if he can step back and relinquish that level of control to have to yeah. be in there, there's nothing, it, it doesn't weaken you in any shape or form as a leader to do that. So, no, uh, no. Well said. Well said. And a fabulous quote. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Love it. Love uh, it. It's, it's great. Um, all right. So I'm going to skip ahead a few more chapters here. Now, again, uh, listeners, as always, when I have uh, uh, guests with books on here, my goal is to get you to go buy a copy of, of the book. And I, I again, I think this is a great book for you to go grab, uh, have nearby. Um, as Jim mentioned, these the way these chapters are laid out. You know, you can go in and you can just go to chapter eight or you can go to chapter 10 and you can read that and, and get that that kind of bite sized coaching nugget there if, if you want. But um, I this is a piece that I'm very passionate about when I talk to folks. And I'm really kind of curious to hear your thoughts on uh, why in chapter 11 you targeted performance reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, Earl. Uh, <laughs> um there is just and 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 uh, it was actually more powerful than I ever would have imagined. You know, I tried to really do a lot of research when I put this this book together, um, and there are just some overwhelming uh, research uh, data studies that have shown. You know, the typical annual performance review that some companies are still doing is so. Uh, useless. Uh, it, it's it's just an exercise. It burns up a lot of energy. Uh, people don't like it. The managers don't like it. The employees don't like it. But we're still mired in this process because we've always done it that way for dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of years. And you know, um, but yet we still continue to do it. And. Um, it's 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 um, it's just shocking that so many companies now have made a migration for more instantaneous feedback, you know, monthly feedback, quarterly feedback, whatever it is, on the spot feedback. 
Um, all kinds of technology and software now has been developed to help managers and companies give feedback, have you know collective group team feedback, but there's still a lot of companies that don't use it. And it's so, um, it's so stifling. I just can't think of a better word than say it's just stifling. And, um, you know, companies are, are wasting, you know, billions of dollars a year, a year, Earl, you know, stuck in this, in this old process that really is, uh, is, is so, negative um and negatively impactful yeah well and and again i'm kind of curious your experiences with this but one thing that i've i've noticed is uh on this piece because i agree with you um i I don't like the the six month or or annual performance review i think if you're waiting that long to have the conversation um you've lost a lot of opportunities and you've let that behavior most likely become an ingrained behavior and harder to correct uh, but I, I get this feeling that a lot of leaders, one of the reasons why they do it that way is they feel that the performance review process has to be overly complicated. Mm-hmm. They've got a form, they've got a rating system, mm-hmm. they got all of these things that they have to, you know, fill these blocks in to have a discussion. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really what people want when they, they talk about this, uh, instantaneous feedback, this instantaneous performance review. It's just have a discussion. Hey, Jim, right. that project you did yesterday, I love what you yep. did with that. That was great, yep. Yep. right? That's that's a performance review, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that um, I encourage, um, particularly uh, people that are outside that come into a, a new, you know, senior management role, senior leadership role is, look, um, if they allow you to do it, go, get to HR and, you know, get the people working for you. There's some get, get a couple of years uh, of their previous, you know, performance reviews. I took over for somebody one time uh, in, in a job um, and I did just that. And um, shockingly, in spite of the fact there's a sign off, you know, uh, of three levels, the person, the manager and the manager's, you know, manager, uh, some of these some of these annual performance reviews were, were not even complete um, and they were poorly filled out. And, you know, one person had on his development plan, uh, which was part of the performance review, the one and only one item on the person's annual development plan simply said this, Earl, read one book. <laughs> It's a it's a heavy task, right? I mean, Earl, we could spend the rest of this time talking about how ridiculous that is, right? Yeah. Read one book about what to do, what uh, to find or learn, what uh, you know. I mean, but this is what's happening because we're stuck in the process and not in the meaning and the outcome, right? So somebody considered that was done, right? The performance review was done. The development plan was done. Boom, right? I checked the box. I gave it to the employee on X and X date, and that's it. I mean, come on. Uh, And the problem is this is the rule, I can assure you, and not the exception. Um, And that's what makes it so stifling and demotivating for the people that have to go through this. Yeah. Well, I, and again, that, that is a, a, a thank you for sharing that. That is a, a crazy and, and interesting, uh, you know, story there. But 
I think it ties in because I want to jump ahead again a little bit here to chapter 14 and training. Now, in this one, you, you talk about training in general, but I kind of want to tie it back to some of these things we've been talking about. And I, my listeners are probably getting tired of hearing me quote this piece of research, but it's important to the conversation we have here now. Um, back in 2012, there was a global study done uh, that uh, it, it crossed multiple sectors uh, around the globe. And I think they had somewhere, uh, I've seen numbers from 12 to 18,000 respondents. Uh, but out of the myriad of questions they, they asked, and this was Harvard again that conducted the study, if I remember right, um, there were two questions that, that uh, were really focused on. One, how old were you when you were promoted into your first management slash leadership role? And two, how old were you when you received your first formal management slash leadership training? And Jim, there was about a decade plus gap from when people were promoted into a position to when they were trained on how to be in that position. And, and I think that's where a lot of this kind of comes into play is if we're not preparing people to uh, get into these leadership roles to do these things, how do you do a continuous performance review? How do you not micromanage? How do you allow innovation? I think we're not investing in this training piece we're setting our leaders up uh, for failure and, and taking good people and leading them down the wrong path. So uh, how does that fit in with kind of what you were talking about in chapter 14? Yeah, I, I mean, completely. I, I love that. I haven't seen that study. I, I, um, I, 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 just, I just love that because it completely corroborates what I've been talking about. Um, and and um, I, I find too often even if there is a, a smaller gap between those two events, companies, you know, put the new manager through new manager training, you know, two day, three day, check the box, put the note in the HR file and then off you go. Um, and, and um, um, it, it's the continuous instantaneous from the very beginning, you know, coaching, mentoring, learning, um, is just so critical and and we're not doing a good job of it some companies are but most companies aren't and and there's just a huge need I mean who's actually watching me okay if I'm a manager and I've got 10 people working for me uh, and my boss uh, is you know in another part of the United States maybe I'm a region maybe I'm a district manager out in the West Coast and my boss is VP of sales back in Philadelphia right who actually comes to my weekly or monthly or quarterly team meeting sits down and just watches how I interact with my team how do I carry myself by the way, same thing, Earl, about how about when I take one of my salespeople and we go in and see a customer? Who else is at that meeting interacting with, with the customer and me um, and, and watching how we interact? I mean, it just never happens. So how can we, how can we train if we don't know what some of the gaps are that our people have right so uh your study is just is just brilliant because it 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 confirms you know everything I've, I've been saying for a long time we're just not adequately and sufficiently training coaching and mentoring these people yeah love it love it 
All right, so I'm going to jump ahead here again to chapter 17 because I think that this uh, is the question that is on everybody's mind and the chapter that, if for no other reason, folks, to get the book, you want to get it for chapter 17 with kind of where we are now and and with the you know other pandemics that are kind of floating out there on the horizon. But chapter 17 is management post-pandemic. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's, uh, it's very exciting, uh, Earl. It really is. I mean, look at uh, what happened in the first few months of the pandemic for those organizations that were able to pivot. Right, there were a lot of companies that were deleteriously hurt, went out of business, um, had to lay a lot of people off. But you also had huge companies like Ford Motor Company and many, many, many others that were able to change what they were doing immediately, start making ventilators, respirators, and uh, things like that. And so what we learned is we can pivot. We can be agile. We can change. We can change on a dime. We can really move quickly and briskly. We don't need all the processes. We don't need the bureaucracies. We can work, you know, other than just purely all the time in an office in many cases, right? Um, And so how we're going back to hybrid, virtual mixtures of that back into the office, how work is happening. I mean, I think there are so many incredible lessons from the pandemic. And what's really struck me, Earl, and I've really been fascinated with this, is to see what senior managers have taken from this or in some cases not taken from this. And this has been such a laboratory for so many people in business and management, right? And what has been, you know, you as a manager and leader, your takeaways from all this? I know somebody who has a fairly large staff, um, you know, they were working remote for two years and he just told everybody that uh, effective Monday, we're all going back in the office and everybody who didn't show up in the office on Monday was fired. Wow. Uh, it <laughs> Seriously, I mean... Uh, I, you just shake your head at what is it you did or did not learn from the pandemic. So it's been fascinating time for me. And I think it's um, we've learned so many lessons that are so germane on being successful uh, in the future. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, and um, you know, I think that's what we're seeing right now with this, this great resignation is I keep trying to remind leaders, right. Is, is, uh, it's not that people don't want to work. I keep hearing all these, these numbers and, you know, oh, they got all this free money. They got this, they got that. People don't get enough free money to replace six figure salaries. People don't get enough free money to, to do any of that. It's not about that. It's, it's what you just mentioned. It's, it's the things that we did during the pandemic that created the, you know, the kind of unicorn work-life balance yeah. and all that kind of good stuff. And now we're trying to take those away and people are not saying that they don't want to work. They're telling organizations, I don't want to work for you. Yep. That's Uh, exactly right. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Very well said. Love it. Love it. All right, sir. Well, Jim, brother, we have had a great conversation here. I can't believe we're already crossing the, the 40 plus minute mark here. 
Um, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to discuss that you really want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? No, I'm great, Earl. Thank you again uh, for the opportunity. It's been delightful. Uh, it absolutely has. I echo that. I, I've loved uh, you sharing your wisdom with us here. And I know people want to find out more about you, find out more about the book, uh, find out more about your services. What is a great place for them to go do all that? Yeah, it, the best place they can go is just jimwetrich.com. There's lots of information about the book and lots of information uh, about other services and links to um a number of places like my LinkedIn profile and website and things like that. So it's just as simple as going to jimwetrich.com. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, Jim, uh, we'll make sure that that gets linked in the show notes. So listeners, you can just click the link and get there and, and connect with Jim and all those, uh, all those ways. And I just want to give one last plug again, go get a copy of the book. You want to grab a copy of Stifled and have it nearby. You hear me talk about uh, kind of quick reference books. This is another one to add. This is one that you want nearby. So when you run into a problem, you can turn to the chapter and see what Jim's thoughts on it and, and have him as a coach through the book uh, all the time. So good stuff there. And uh, Jim, again, thank you for sharing your your insight, your wisdom. I've loved everything you've had to say here today. I really believe you're out there, uh, you know, changing changing people's lives through uh, imparting some of these leadership pieces of wisdom that you have. So thank you for being a great guest and having this discussion with me and my audience on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Earl. It's been a real honor to be with you today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.